Our sermon lesson today actually comes from, it's, it's kind of nestled in between the portions that Jason was reading earlier. It's in Mark 6, verses 45 through 52. And here we read, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. This is the crowd from the feeding of the 5,000. After leaving them, he went up onto a mountainside to pray. And later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. This is God's word. So in the lesson that Jason read a few moments ago, uh, We've, we see again and again Jesus showing compassion on people. And that's kind of what he does for a lot of his earthly ministry, right? He sees a deficit, he sees a need, and he shows sympathy on the people. If you don't know, the word sympathy actually comes from the, the Greek word sympathos, which means passion, pathos, is to suffer. So sympathy is to suffer with somebody. And we see Jesus again and again and again doing this. He finds somebody in need and he, what, they're hungry, so he feeds them uh, and gives them bread. They're sick, so he heals them. They're demon-possessed, so he drives out the demons. And one of the interesting things is, one of the more common responses when Jesus works a miracle like that is almost invariably the crowds want to turn him into their king immediately. They see all the great things that they did for him, and then they want to make him their king. Now, they don't want to make him their eternal king. They want, him to, they want to like elect him into the office of ruler. They think, if that guy would just be in more charge, then our lives would get a lot easier a lot faster. In other words, they weren't necessarily looking for Jesus to be their Lord. They were kind of looking for Jesus to be their big old helper. Um, If you pay close attention to the way Jesus ministers to his disciples in the Gospels, he doesn't want them to adopt that kind of mentality, and he goes out of his way so that they don't. In fact, the, the very first verse in our lesson tonight that I just read a second ago, it says, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go while he dismissed the crowd. He makes them get out of there. Why? Because the disciples are trying, the, 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 the crowd is trying to turn him into a king and he doesn't want his disciples to have that perception of him. Um, he refuses to let the people make him a king. He refuses to let the disciples have the perception of him that the rest of the world has that he should be an earthly kind of king. And consequently, commentator after commentator will all say this about these texts in Mark. You almost can't read uh, the feeding of the 5,000 text without reading the Jesus walking on the water text. They have to go together. My my guess is you've heard sermons on one or the other before. You almost have to put them together. In fact, at the end of our lesson, in verse 52, it says the same thing. It says the disciples had not understood about the loaves. It's referring back to the feeding of the 5,000. These two texts are supposed to be read together. Why? 
Because in the moment of the feeding of the 5,000, the moment of the intensity of that miracle, Jesus doesn't want his disciples thinking that's primarily why he came to earth. He didn't primarily come to earth. His ministry was not about, their ministry would not be about, and the Christian life is not supposed to be primarily about earthly success in temporal victory. Yeah, I'm not saying it's ever going to be devoid of earthly successes. It's not primarily about earthly successes or temporal victory. His ministry, our lives, is about a cross and an eternal victory. So he says stuff like, my kingdom, it's not of this world. And so this week is really all about Jesus recognizing the needs of his people and showing sympathy. He suffers with them. He ultimately suffers for them. But you'll notice he, that doesn't mean he's going to bring all their earthly sufferings, all their storms to an end. That wouldn't be in their best interest. So here's how we're going to divide it up tonight, okay? We're going to look at, number one, how life, your life, is uncontrollable. Number two, Jesus himself is uncontrollable. Number three, the only way you can get through all of that is if Jesus actually is in control. Your life is uncontrollable. Jesus is uncontrollable to you. But Jesus is in control. That's how you get through all of it. First of all, your life is uncontrollable. Uh, there are two counts, two accounts in the Gospels that talk about Jesus at sea. Two weeks ago, we looked at the other one. You remember what that one was? Some of you who were here, uh, there was this massive storm that Jesus led his disciples directly into, and they panicked, and Jesus was sleeping on a cushion uh, underneath on the lower deck, and they come down to him, and they say, we're going to die, don't you care about us, aren't you going to help us? He gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and then he says, where was your faith? Don't you have any faith? If you have faith, you got to use it. Uh, this is the second of those Jesus at sea accounts. Jesus walking on the water. And much like the last one, might, some of you might remember from the last time, we said that in the ancient world, the average person looked at a voyage at sea as like a big metaphor for life. Why? Because when you go on a trip out to sea, you know what? It's wide open. There's lots of options. Uh, it's often very beautiful. It often makes you very, feel very small and out of control. Uh, there's a sense of journey and a sense of destiny. There's some storms that unpredictably come up out of nowhere. And then here's the new point of comparison this evening. Sometimes when you're on a journey at sea and sometimes in life, you row and you row and you row and you paddle and you paddle and you paddle and it feels like you're not going anywhere. Okay? Look at what he says here uh, in the verses tonight. We're looking at verses 47 and 48. It says, Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. What it literally says there is his disciples were being tortured. Their rowing, their straining against the wind and the waves was torturing them. That's, that's life, isn't it? Uh, journey at sea, the storms are uncontrollable, life is uncontrollable, sometimes we just keep paddling and you feel like you're going absolutely nowhere. You know how uncontrollable life is? Here's a little biology lesson. Um, every single one of us starts out as one cell. And that one cell then turns into two cells, right? I actually think Call me crazy, I actually think there's a little bit of the how God creates Adam and Eve thing going on here as you have the one that divides into the two. Nonetheless, don't, don't take my word on that one. That's just, that's just a creative idea. 
what, what I do know happens is one cell divides into two, two cells divide into four, four cells divide into eight, and it keeps going on and on and on like this, right? And cells become tissues, and tissues become organs, and organs make up the human. And fascinatingly, one cell turns into a hundred trillion cells. The crazy thing about that is in the neighborhood of a hundred trillion cells, guess what? Once in a while, one of those cells goes rogue. One of those cells gets off, and there's a little typo in the genetic coding. We call that a mutation. And generally speaking, uh, the cell has, it's built so incredibly that it knows that something's off in the coding and so it shuts itself down. If that doesn't happen, sometimes the system recognizes that there's a troublemaking cell in its system and so it eliminates that mutated cell. But sometimes the mutated cell gets past the fail-safes in the system. And fascinatingly, once it gets past that, those last hurdles, then it starts uh, multiplying rapidly and recklessly. And not only does the mutated cell uh, just multiply, but it multiplies its mutation. And then weeks go by, and months go by, and years go by maybe, and you find yourself going into the doctor to get a, a check on that lump in your breast, or asking why you're having so much difficulty going to the bathroom, or getting a routine blood test and finding out that you have spiked levels of white blood cells or the, there's an increased uh, enzymes in your liver and you get the awful word, cancer. We know this at St. Marcus, we know all about this all too well right now, right? Here's the terrifying thing, what are you gonna do about that? How can you control that? Now, I mean, modern technology has made some things to address the problems. Uh, and we take proactive measures. We put on our suntan lotion, we try to eat right, and we exercise, and, and, and we quit smoking. And I'm not knocking any of that. It's all good ideas. But none of that changes the fact that you have one cell inside of you that you can't control. One single mutated cell in your own body, you can't even control that. Now, if that's the case, if that's true, by the way, most of us, many of us, have some of those cells in our bodies right now. The vast majority of them will get eliminated because the cell will shut down or the system will, will get rid of it. But many of us have those cells just sitting in us right now, and who knows what's going to happen. If you can't control one single mutated cell in your body, how on earth do you think you're going to try to go and control all those other cells out there around you in the world? How are you going to control the environment that surrounds you? You're not. And what that means, if you can't control one cell in your own body, that means that any perception you have over the control and the destiny of your life has got to be some form of illusion. The guy I know who wrote most compellingly about this uh, in recent history is a German philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. And uh, ironically enough, uh, Nietzsche was the son of a Lutheran minister. And yet Nietzsche's father died at a very young age. And Nietzsche became very bitter about that. In fact, he was studying in ministerial school in his teen years and he became so angry uh, that he decided and he convinced a whole boatload of people like a good chunk of the modern Western world that an existence apart from God is the way to go. He believed that, you know what, 
we can control our own lives as autonomous individuals. And religion is evil because it's just a power play that some people use to try to control everybody else in the world. Don't fall for that nonsense. You've got to do your own thing. You've got to be you. You've got to control your own destiny. You know how Nietzsche ends up? Last 10 years of his life, he drives himself insane. Um, and you say, well, maybe he got old and he you know, fell into dementia or whatever. No, no. He drove himself insane and he died in his early 40s. Uh, Nietzsche serves as something of a fascinating illustration of what it looks like to go all in on attempting to live your life entirely apart from God. Fascinatingly, Nietzsche's last book that was published, it wasn't even while he was alive, his, his sister Elizabeth uh, published it because she knew she could make a lot of money off of it because he was influential both in his own life and, and in the years to come. Uh, it was called The Will to Power, or you could probably translate it, The Will to Control. And this was Nietzsche's last book, and fascinatingly, there's scribbles of his own grocery lists uh, over the pages of the notebook uh, that he has there. That's how much he must have thought of his own work by the very end. That guy, here's the thing that scares me, that guy more than anybody else in world history influences modern American thought. It's any wonder why we have a nation that's more medicated because we feel more helpless, painfully helpless, than other groups that didn't have the same kind of blessings in world history. Should that really have shocked us that much or should we have seen this one coming? Many of you probably feel like there's an, at least an aspect of your life that is entirely painfully out of your control right now. Your marriage. Marriage isn't going quite like you expected it to. What are you going to do? How are you going to control that other person? They have, it's hard enough to control cells that don't have their own independent will. How are you going to control another human being that does actually have an independent will? Do you think you're just going to do A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z, and voila, all of a sudden it's going to get right back on track? What about your work? I know a lot of you right now have talked to me about how your work life is just seems like a nightmare. Um, and it seems like your work environment is the single most dysfunctional, gossipy, selfish place uh, you've ever been. How are you going to control that environment? Are you going to just flee it and go to a different job? And then when you discover that work environment, go to a different job? I'm not saying some work environments aren't better than others. I'm saying all work environments are filled with sinful people. Some of you right now are struggling with some form of addiction. Uh, sex or food or shopping or it could be anything. It could be desiring the approval of other people. And uh, you're losing respect. Maybe not even out there losing other people's respect, but behind closed doors when you look into the mirror and you realize this person, I cannot even control myself. I cannot even control my own behavior. You start to lose respect for yourself. How are you going to control that? In other words, don't you sometimes feel like you are just rowing and rowing and rowing and paddling against the storm and your boat just ain't going anywhere? And you're going directly into the forces of nature and the forces of life and you can't get anywhere. That's life. That's painfully uncontrollable. I'll tell you what, get this. 
Jesus wanted so badly for his disciples to learn this lesson that life is uncontrollable that he willfully told them to go directly into an area where they would encounter a storm. Why? He wanted them to know life in and of itself is uncontrollable for us. Not only as our lives, sorry, I had some other illustrations here. This is Nietzsche at the end of his life. This is where his thoughts led him to. Uh, not only is, is our lives, are our lives uh, uncontrollable in themselves, but Jesus himself is uncontrollable. Look at how he appears in our lesson here tonight. Let me read you these verses again. We're looking at verses 48 to 50. It says, Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. And he was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they, saw, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Here's the interesting thing. We all have these perceptions of what Jesus is really like and like if Jesus comes into our lives, it would always be calming, it would always be comforting, it would always be uh, enjoyable. None of us envision Jesus working in our lives like this, like, like this, this terrifying kind of thing. So therefore, very clearly, one of the things that Jesus is teaching us here is what? Sometimes when I work in your life, Sometimes when I work in your life, it's going to come in terrifying ways. In other words, human beings tend to be kind of simplistic. And one of the things we tend to think is, if I'm comfortable, that's blessing. That's good. If I'm uncomfortable, that's bad. That's evil. That's wicked. That's Satan. That's not what the Bible says, though. The Bible actually says that Satan is a fallen angel this mighty, majestic, beautiful creature from God who has rebelled against God. And therefore, when Satan comes to you, you should assume that he's not going to come with horns and pitchforks. When he comes to you, sometimes it's going to look just beautiful and attractive and appealing, and he draws you in. And furthermore, if it's true that when Jesus comes to his disciples on the water and they think he's some kind of evil spirit being, that means sometimes when Jesus is working in your life, it's going to be absolutely terrifying. Why can't we tell the difference? Why can't we know when it's God putting something on our hearts versus Satan trying to manipulate our hearts? It's because we have this disgusting film that goes over the lens of our hearts called a sinful nature. And it causes us to have this distorted view of ourselves, of God, and of the world. And if that's true, if it's true that we have this disgusting film, this sin covering the lens of our hearts so that we can't always see spiritually very clearly, what that means is if you can't see clearly, you probably shouldn't be in the driver's seat. You probably need to get out of the driver's seat and let somebody else take over at that point, right? Um... There's an unfortunate amount of Christians that would like that level of control and would like to be in the driver's seat and would like to almost manipulate God. In fact, let me just give you one instance of it. Many of you have heard of the concept of, of prosperity theology before, right? What is prosperity theology? It's the idea that if I believe enough and if I increase my faith and I'm obedient enough, then God automatically, almost mechanically, has to, must bless me. And it's simply not true because God is not a mechanism that you can control. 
God is an independent being with his own personal divine will. But that's what the people at the feeding of the 5,000, they thought, well, if we can just make Jesus king, then everything in our lives go well. Everything in our lives will be easy. And God says, I will not be programmed. I will not be manipulated. Not through your flattery, not through your obedience, and not through your disobedience. I'm God, you're not. I've got my own will for my own reasons. It's kind of a famous preaching example of somebody who tried to control God by doing a bunch of good things. I've heard this illustration used a couple different times from preachers. It's a young woman who uh, a couple generations ago wanted to be a missionary, but in that particular era, they weren't, women in general weren't doing a whole lot of overseas travel by themselves, and not many churches were sending women to be missionaries overseas, for sure. And her church or her church body wouldn't let her go over alone. Uh, In order for her to be a missionary, she had to get married. And so she thought, God, I'm going to do this great thing for you. I'm going to go out into the world overseas and serve as a missionary, and therefore I trust that you're going to do the right things for me to make that happen. So guess what she did? She went to school. And she studied for years and years and years, thinking God will provide the needs. It gets to be the night before her graduation. And you know what? Not only is she not married, but she doesn't have any prospects. And guess how she feels? She is so angry and so bitter, and she's thinking to herself, God, I spent all these years studying because I was going to do this great thing for you. And in that moment of bitterness, she had this, like, slice of, of clarity. And she realized this entire time, I wasn't trying to serve God, I was trying to use God. I told him exactly what I was going to do with my life and I said, God, you need to bless me if I do this. And you know what? When you, when you approach God like that and you say, I will serve you, I will love you, I will worship you if whatever. Whatever's on the other side of that if, that's the thing in your life that you're really, that you're really living for. The, the preacher who originally used this illustration ends the story by saying, that night, the young woman took her hands off of her life. We don't know what happens to the rest of it. Uh, but she learns the spiritual lesson. That woman takes her hands off of her life. Now, let me ask you a question. If a woman who was studying for years to be a missionary could come to the realization that she hadn't yet taken her hands off of her own life, Do you think it's possible that any of us haven't yet taken our hands off of our own lives? In other words, are you comfortable letting Jesus direct your life wherever he wants it to go, or are you constantly telling Jesus exactly the way that he needs to bless you? He's not controllable. I don't advise it. Which brings me to the final point. Life is uncontrollable. Jesus is uncontrollable. How do you deal with this? Um, Virtually everyone I've ever done counseling with has one common problem. In other words, I might be counseling for a variety of different reasons, but everybody that I've ever counseled virtually has the same, one of the same issues. Almost every single one of them are making themselves miserable because they're spending a lot of time and energy trying to control things that they can't control. So, for instance, in their marriage, They're happy to tell me about how irritating their spouse's behavior is. And I'll say, okay, what are you going to do about that? Well, and in fact, 
One of the things that they learn is the more you try to control the other person's behavior, the more you tend to antagonize them, and that just kind of fosters the irritating behavior. Or your job situation isn't quite what you would like it to be. What are you going to do? Are you going to change your whole work environment? Are you going to continue to go from job to job to job? And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that there isn't a time in life where it's, it's worth, worthy and uh, worthwhile and God glorifying to go to a different job. But I'm saying, do you ever think you're going to fully flee the situation, that situation? Uh, or let's say you're single and you're trying to just force marriage to happen. You want it so bad. Invariably, you know how you're going to come off? You're going to come off as desperate, which counterintuitively doesn't work with attraction. So I think, I think you're getting it. Some of you are saying, okay, pastor, you seem to be suggesting that I shouldn't try so hard to control my own life. How do I let go of control over my own life? The key is this. The way to let go of control over your own life and actually spend your time and energy on the things that you can control, which, by the way, every one of us as a finite creature only has so much energy and if you're spending all of that energy trying to control the things in your life that you can't control, you are not going to have enough energy left over to be faithful in serving and influencing the things that God actually does call you to influence. So how do you, how do you get to the point where you take your hands, how do you get to the point where you take your hands off of your own life and you put your energy into influencing only the things that you can influence? It can only happen one way. It can only happen if you realize that Jesus is in control of all of it for you. Look at some of the last verses in our lesson. It says, Immediately Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed. I'll tell you what, there's a bunch of interesting things going on in this text, but I'll just give you one. Look at what he says. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. I'll tell you what, English translators, your English translation, they have to put it into something that people can understand. So they say things like, take courage, don't be afraid, it is I. That sounds so high school play, I can't, it is I. I promise you, Jesus did not say, it is I. You know what he literally says? He says, take courage, don't be afraid. And then he uses the Greek word, Greek words, ego I me, which is actually in this particular context is a very unusual thing to say. He says, take courage, don't be afraid, I am. You know why he says that? That would have been a really weird thing to say. Take courage, don't be afraid, I am. His disciples knew exactly what he was talking about. Do you? You go back to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and go to, for instance, Moses. And Moses, when he encounters the Lord God in the burning bush, he says, who should I tell the Israelites that you want me to lead out of slavery in Egypt, this monumental task? Who am I supposed to tell them is telling me to do all of this? And he says, you tell them, I am sent you. 
See, I am, in, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures, everybody knew who this was. This is the God who creates the universe and holds the stars in the sky. This is the one who sends the plagues. This is the one who holds the Red Sea open so that the Israelite nation can walk right through it. Everybody knows who I am is. They know his power. They know his glory. What they don't know for sure is how much he likes them because he doesn't always let them approach him. Right? Moses was only allowed to get so close to that burning bush. And the Israelites were not allowed to go into the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple. The Israelites all knew that God was powerful to help them. They didn't know how much he liked or loved them. So what does Jesus do? He walks. I'll tell you what. Teachers out there, don't, don't tell your students that this is the story where Jesus walks on water. Tell your students that this is the story where Jesus walks through the storm. Jesus walks through this storm and he controls it all. He's unfazed by the forces of nature because he's Lord over the storm and Lord over the nature. And he says what? You know what? I'm powerful enough to walk on this water and walk through this storm, but I love you enough that I'm coming into your boat. I love you enough that I'm going to suffer through this with you and ultimately I am going to suffer by diving headfirst into the ultimate storm of God's wrath against your sins for you. Just all I'm asking you to do is let me in your boat. Let me in the driver's seat. To calm the storm for you, the only man who could walk right through the storm has to humble himself to die in the storm, but he does it gladly because you're worth it to him. Now, only when you realize that, only when Jesus gets into your boat, only when the truth of God's grace climbs into the seat of your heart as the operating principle of your heart, that alone is the thing that can calm the storms that exist on the inside. Jesus does not promise that he's going to end all the storms of life. What he does promise is, I will suffer all of those storms with you. I will suffer the ultimate storm for you on the cross which means that one day all of your storms are going to come to a peaceful end. And here's what you learn. You don't need to be in control of your life so long as you realize that that God who loves you that much is in control of your life for you. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, tonight we come humbly asking you to forgive us for trying to do your job. Many of us are still sitting in the driver's seat of our lives and we've got to move over. And we've got to stop telling you where our life needs to go or what needs to happen in order for us to be happy and content and that's just completely untrue. Lord, we can't see all that clearly because our hearts are plagued by this disease of sin. And you've paid the ultimate price for our sins. Your cross says you love us enough to guide us clearly. Your, your empty tomb proves you're powerful enough to get us to the other side. Let us allow you to simply be in that driver's seat and let us do our job simply in singing your praises and following you along the way. In your holy name we pray. Amen.